Entering this session is Charles Dunn. Charles Dunn is a former Foreign Service Officer. He was the Director for the Office of Iraq in the National Security Council. He served on the Policy Planning Council in the U.S. Department of State, also dealing uh, with Iraq. His field is Iraq, and we have a superb team of presenters to come at various dimensions and dynamics of Iraq. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats for this session. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Anthony, and I really appreciate the, uh, um, the opportunity to be here, and I want to thank the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations for hosting this panel on what I think is a very important issue, perhaps under, underappreciated in some senses. Um, for most of the last seven years, Iraq has probably been the main foreign policy preoccupation of the United States, but with the drawdown of U.S. forces to 50,000 last August and the final withdrawal scheduled uh, for the end of 2011, uh, this issue has sort of fallen off the screen of the American public uh, Congress to a certain extent, and I would argue uh, uh, the administration's uh, screen as a major policy priority. So we have the title of our panel today, The End Game in Iraq, but is it really? Uh, I would argue that the game is very much alive for both Iraqis and the United States, and certainly it's alive for Iraq's neighbors. Many questions remain to be answered before we have achieved an Iraq that is sovereign, stable, and reliant, uh, as President Obama has put it. Seven months after our national elections, we have no government, uh, and Iran appears increasingly uh, poised to achieve its goal uh, of a religious Shiite government with Prime Minister Maliki uh, as, uh, returning as the Prime Minister. Um, the future participation of Iraq Sunnis is the in the political process, if they perceive that they have been dealt out of power, is also in question. Uh, as the political game uh, plays out, preparations for the final U.S. withdrawal at the end of 2011, as I've mentioned, continue. And there's no clarity from the Iraqi side at this point as to whether they will request the U.S. to stay on in some strength. There's been a lot of discussion about this and different views uh, expressed by the Iraqi politicians, uh, but no, no clarity yet. Uh, much of this, of course, depends on the formation of the next government, who is going to be in charge, and specifically what role Muqtada Sadr and his party is going to play in that government. Meanwhile, the U.S. is trying to manage a very challenging uh, transition from a military-led presence in Iraq to a civilian-led presence uh, led by the State Department. Um, can State and DOD manage this transition? And will the civilian mission have the freedom of mobility and the freedom of resources uh, to implement uh, our future policy in Iraq? Longer-range challenges also loom. According to UNHCR, uh, UN uh, High Commission on Refugees, approximately 2 million Iraqis have fled to neighboring countries, posing significant problems for their hosts. It's an open question as to how many are actually going to be able to return in the next few years, and certainly over the longer term. Um, as many as 2.7 million Iraqis may have been internally displaced, which has significantly changed the demographic makeup uh, of Iraq and has also had an effect on its internal politics. Finally, how the region reacts to developments in Iraq will be critical in determining whether Baghdad draws closer to Tehran 
or closer to its Arab neighbors, uh, with implications for U.S. policy as America tries to forge a strong strategic relationship with Iraq after 2011 and fully integrate Iraq into its regional security and political strategy. Now, we are very fortunate today to have a distinguished panel to help examine these and other questions. Our first speaker, Michael Corbin, is Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Near East for Iraq issues. He served as Minister Counselor for Political Military Affairs in Baghdad and as Charge d'Affaires in Damascus. Dr. Michel Gabaudan is President of Refugees International. Prior to his role with that organization, Dr. Gabaldon served as the United Nations High Commission on Refugees Regional Representative for the United States and the Caribbean. His career with UNHCR spanned more than 25 years, including international service in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Pacific. Manal Omar is Director of Iraq Programs at the United States Institute of Peace. She was Regional Program Manager for the Middle East for Oxfam Great Britain, where she responded to humanitarian crises in Palestine and Lebanon. Uh, Manal lived in Baghdad from 2003 to 2005, where she set up operations for the organization Women for Women International. She is the author of this year's Barefoot in Baghdad, a story of identity, my own, and what it means to be a woman in chaos, which captures the tale of women in Iraq. And finally, uh, Brian Katulis is Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, where his work focuses on U.S. national security policy in the Middle East and South Asia. He has served as a consultant to many U.S. government agencies, private corporations, and non-governmental organizations on projects in more than two dozen countries. So um, before I ask you to welcome our speakers, I'd just like to note um, that uh, questions will be submitted on cards. They're to be delivered uh, to the folks who will uh, pick them up, bring them up to us. We will take a look at the questions, and you'll have an opportunity following the panel and after our 10 minutes of discussion to ask these. So thank you very much, and please join me in welcoming our speakers. It's a great honor to be here, and I certainly do agree that this is an institute of higher learning on the Middle East. Um, what I've learned in my career so far, and I've been honor, it's been an honor and privilege to serve in, in many Middle Eastern posts, what I've discovered so far, and I'm still learning, is that patience and optimism are what a diplomat needs every morning. And today, you're going to hear some optimism, which comes from Iraq, which may be strange, given what you read in the media, but I've gotten, I got a few minutes to try and lay out where the administration is on Iraq and where we're going, and then we'll have a discussion and question and answers where I can get into more detail. But first, what I'll focus on are the two transitions that we see in Iraq right now. We see an Iraqi transition, and we see a U.S. transition. The Iraqi transition is one from violence to politics. The American transition is one from a military security-dominated relationship to a more traditional development and assistant and diplomatic, diplomatic relationship as we have with many partners around the world. Let me start with the 
Iraqi situation. Iraq is the first country that I've been in where change is happening. If you leave, if you are in Iraq on one day and go back three months later, things are changing. And what I would just underline as we look at this Iraqi transition is that the Iraqis have moved from a situation in 2006 when they were last trying to form a government when violence and militias and, um, and killings in the street were the rule to a situation where all, and I repeat, all the major parties who participated in the election, and that's most of them, are engaged in daily negotiations on the future of Iraq. And this is extremely encouraging because what it means is that compromise on, on strongly held positions among all the different sects, confessions, and groups in Iraq is a mainstay of what we see daily in Iraq, whether it's the Kurds on their long-held concerns, whether it's Shia concerns, whether it's Sunni concerns. The groups are meeting together and negotiating together on how they're going to form a government. And it isn't paralysis. You'll read in the media that it's paralysis, but if you follow the Iraqi media, the discussion of the different coalitions that are, are possible, the different personalities, the different formations that are occurring, occurs every day, and the changes are dramatic. So we don't have a paralyzed situation in Iraq. We have a situation where government formation is very active and where the different players are working together to form a government, and this is very important, to form a government that is inclusive, that represents the different communities. All of the major political figures have come out and said the government should be inclusive and represent all the parties who've participated in the elections. Those elections, and this is another explanation why it's taking time, led to two blocks getting 91 seats out of the 325-seat parliament for the Iyad al-Alawi's Iraqiya coalition and 89 seats for Maliki's state of law, the, for, the current prime minister's state of law coalition. This has made it very complex, but it's also got positive elements. Iraqis on March 7th voted for the most um, uh, secular, if you can say that, but the most combined blocks that were focused on services and on uh, cor combating corruption and on changing the situation for Iraqis' ev everyday lives. And when you look at the fact that the, the um, religious parties, the extremists in, of one sector or not did not re receive votes, that the Sunnis voted for a Shia candidate in Iyad Alawi, this is encouraging. Now, the Iraqi people are frustrated and they want to see this government formed, but there is a lot of activity going on and we think that to say it's paralyzed is incorrect. Quickly, on the interim government that has been in place, it is functioning. Whether it's on the security side or on the economic side, decisions are being made, um, services are being provided, Security, for example, at the end of August, when we had an uptick in violence, which was linked to both Ramadan and to President Obama's date of August 31st for the end of combat missions, we saw an uptick in violence. In September and in October this month, we've seen the Iraqi security forces take significant actions against violence in Iraq and terrorism. There is not support for the insurgency, despite some articles talking about Sunnis returning to the insurgency. A, there isn't an insurgency, there's a lot of frustration, there are terrorist groups, but B, we don't have evidence of Sunnis returning to, the, to take up arms against the government or against the political process. 
Um, I would just say on the economic side, we, two days ago we just had the third economic bid round or the oil bid round in the hydrocarbons field. The Iraqis are proceeding with this type of economic decision and I can get into more of that into the dis in, in the discussion period. There is not paralysis in the government. Things are going forward. Turning, since I don't have much time, I'm going to turn to the U.S. transition. And what we're building on is the fact that we have Iraqi partners. We have a partnership that we can build on that the Iraqis are calling for that takes our relationship from a security-dominated relationship to one that's based on the traditional areas such as trade, um, diplomatic, and, and we heard in the previous panel about the importance of reintegration of Iraq into the region. This is extremely important, and we're working on our partnership with the Iraqis as they go forward to change our relationship. We've got to provide employment. We, people are not turning to the insurgency, but they will if they don't have jobs. That's why we're partnered with the Iraqi government in the areas of health, education, and agriculture. The oil services or the oil um, business will not provide the employment. Agriculture is a traditional area. Iraqis know about agriculture, and they can return to agriculture. We're working with them. We, we are going to switch to a civilian-led program, and I will note this transition is not starting now. I was there in January of 2009 when Ambassador Ryan Crocker opened our new embassy, our, one of the largest in the world. It's serving already as a diplomatic platform for us to do civilian-led activities. We're working hand-in-glove with the military on the transition, and that includes the important task of transitioning the activities the military has done for seven years to civilian ownership. Preferably the Iraqis own them, but in the cases where the Iraqis don't, civilian agencies will take over. This is a process that has been ongoing, and we see enormous progress. Um, just to, to finish up, because I want to get to the discussion and let, allow the other panelists to talk, the, as Charles said in his introduction, this isn't an end game in Iraq. This is a time when we're building, we have a commitment to partnership, and Vice President Biden has made five trips to Iraq in the last year and a half. The um, State Department has got to get this military to civilian transition right, not just because of Iraq, but because this shows we can take over from a conflict situation from our military colleagues, and this will apply to other places. It doesn't mean that Afghanistan will be a success, but it certainly, if we have success, it means that we won't have, Afghan we won't have Iraq as a, a, an example of, some, of an area where we failed. The Iraqis are taking the lead in this partnership. And I'm sure I'll get questions on this, so I'll just briefly touch on this fact that Iraq, Iraqis are seeking Iraqi problems for, uh, Iraqi solutions for Iraqi problems. The neighbors are trying to influence things, but they are not influencing the outcome of government formation. There's been a lot of speculation about who's influencing what and whether um, one country is winning, quote, end quote, in Iraq. We don't see that. We see the Iraqis walking a fine balance of building constructive relations with all their neighbors, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, Syria, Jordan, or Kuwait. And this is very important as we go forward that we support the Iraqis in their efforts to have constructive relations with their, their neighbors. We are very actively engaged with the neighbors and with Iraq on this task, but we see enormous progress and I'm sure in the discussion answer uh, period I can address some of the more fo issues focused on administration policy. Thank you very much.
Good morning, and thank you very much for the privilege to have a chance to address this very distinguished uh, audience. I represent uh, Refugees International, an independent agency that monitors the situation of refugees and displaced people in the world and makes recommendation to the U.S. government and to the United Nations. Well, certainly from my point of view, uh, in Iraq, there is no end to the dire situation in which people who have fled uh, the sectarian violence still find themselves. It's still very much an active issue, and whatever positive developments happen, uh, as we have been told, and I'm certainly not decrying these, but must not make us forget that a lot needs to be done to attend a very large number of people who still find themselves in a very precarious state. And just to go back quickly over how these displacement took place just after 2003, the Iraqis who left were in general wealthy Iraqis who went to Syria or Jordan with their own uh, means. Some left because they perhaps feared retribution, others left because they were not quite sure what would happen to Iraq. The big movement, however, occurred between 2005 and 2008 for much more modest people who were fleeing the results of the sectarian violence, which was then at its peak. People were fleeing either because they had been associated with the multinational forces or with American companies or with the UN, or because they represented minorities, religious minorities living among majorities, Shias living in Sunni areas, the reverse, of course, and Christian Yazidis and Mandeans living among, um, among uh, uh, larger Muslim communities. Um, those who could make it left for Jordan and Syria, and those who couldn't were just displaced within Iraq. There's a very interesting map, inter interactive map on the BBC website where you can look at how Baghdad was divided between mixed communities, Sunni and Shia communities, before 2003 and how it looks now. The majority of the areas were mixed before 2003. You have very little of these areas left now in Baghdad. It's all completely different. So people moved according to their um, affiliations. Uh, at the height of the movement, it was estimated that some two million people had been displaced within Iraq, and perhaps two million people had become refugees in Syria and Jordan. And I think I would like to emphasize here the fact that after some hesitations, uh, Syria and Jordan have behaved very well in tolerating this very large influx of people uh, within, their, within their borders. Uh, today, we have perhaps slightly more moderate assessment of the numbers, but they're still stra staggering. We believe that there are a million and a half people still displaced within Iraq, and there are about 500,000 refugees within Syria and Jordan, uh, 230,000 of whom have registered with UNHCR, which means they have accepted the refugee stamp, if you want, mostly to have access to some benefits. The others have not registered because they would like to avoid being categorized as refugees and they still try to survive as, as welcome brothers. My, uh, Mahal will cover most of the situation of, of uh, refugees, but it's not a fixed situation where people are either in or out of the country. There is a certain element of movement between people who are in refugee situation and people who are displaced within, within Iraq. So it's a fluid situation. Our main concern now regarding these refugees, we have 
uh, moved in Iraq among some of the poorest communities of the displaced people. And we think there are about 500,000 people who squatter in absolutely miserable conditions under bridges, along railroads, in uh, garbage dumps. And this is not the normal face of urban misery that one witnesses in different parts of the world, in poorest countries. These are people who have been pushed into misery as a result of the sectarian violence and who cannot get out of that. The other million displaced have found usually succor either with relatives or within communities of the same affiliation. But half a million people still in very precarious situations with no land titles, who fear to go back in their areas of origin, who are so poor that they cannot afford to move, and who lack every basic services is a situation that needs to be addressed as part of the stabilization plan of, uh, of Iraq. The second big concern we have in Iraq is that of access. It's true that the US and the UN are vaunting the improvement in the security situation in Iraq. But their security protocols have not changed at all. There is still tremendous limitation on the possibility for officials from the US government or from the UN to move out in the communities and assess needs for themselves. Um, this is, of course, to the detriment of the Iraqis who need these, uh, these assistance, and we believe very strongly that these protocols should be uh, reviewed. Uh, my colleagues have traveled in Iraq discreetly without any problem, uh, and we found squatters just a few blocks away from the, uh, from the international zone that nobody heard about. And this is not quite acceptable, I think, at the time when we, when we uh, are talking about moving forward. Unfortunately, the attack on the special rep of the UN Secretary General just a few days ago, even if it was not uh, fatal or dangerous, will uh, pose some difficulties in convincing the UN, for example, to review its, its security guidelines and to allow its officials to have a more proactive approach towards the Iraqi communities and not just interaction with the government. And when we have talked to people in Sadr City, in areas that were considered to be the difficult ones, people tell us, we want assistance. We want people to come and, and help us. You know, we're, we're not against anyone. Uh, some even told us, you know, I can't read. You know, I don't, can't even see what's on the bag. You know, I just want people to take care of us. So I think the whole question of access will have to be broken as soon as possible. To date, US officials, UN officials go to the field after weeks of negotiation and with the support of the US Army. With the withdrawal of US Army, how they will operate in the future remains a big, a big question mark. And I don't think there will be much progress in the situation of the people I have been mentioning if this question of access is not addressed in a more, in a more generous uh, way. Uh, I'm not asking people to take uh, high risk, but I'm asking people to be perhaps a little bit bold in considering who are those who most need international attention. International attention, of course, has been weak. The, after what I would say was perhaps a slow response at the beginning, the US has been practically the main supporter of the whole humanitarian relief for refugees outside Iraq and for displaced people inside Iraq. The appeals that the international community have regularly made were funded to the extent of 60% only, barely above half of the needs were met, and 60% of that was regularly funded by the US. The rest of the Arab world 
was not responding well, Europe certainly was not responding well, and these, in my view, are mistakes. We don't want, everybody has an interest in the stability of Iraq, and leaving large numbers of people in a precarious situation is not a factor of stability. And um, we certainly wish that, though the U.S. has done its share, it will continue to do its share in supporting displaced persons by violence in and outside uh, Iraq. Just a quick word of another issue that has, uh, has developed in Iraq is that there were refugees in Iraq before uh, 2003. Some of these refugees have found themselves in very difficult situation as a result of the change in the power um, uh, disposition in Iraq. And those who have been the most victimized have been the Palestinians. There were about 35,000 Palestinians living in Baghdad before 2003. There are probably 9 to 10,000 left now. Many of them tried to escape, and Syria and Jordan, who were very generous to Iraqis, did prevent them from going, uh, getting into their country. They were left into uh, camps in the no man's land in between the countries, and after many years of living in very precarious situation, we have managed to get some solution for resettlement for them, and I'm very pleased to say that the U.S. has taken a fairly large number of Palestinians as a result of these uh, uh, of this advocacy that we, that we carried out. But there are still uh, Palestinians hiding, pretending to be Iraqis, both in, in um, Baghdad and in Damascus, and their plight will have to be addressed if we don't want, again, to have another possible uh, source of trouble or instability or disquiet uh, developing. Manal will address the situation of refugees uh, in particular, but I just want to say that what, while uh, Syria and Jordan have been generous in granting access to Iraqis and have been, uh, have been very careful at not, not deporting them except when they commit uh, crimes, uh, basically the population of Iraqis is falling into increasing degrees of poverty months by months. The UNHR is seeing an increase of the number of people who come to register as refugees, not because there are new arrivals in uh, Syria, but because they are just so poor that they cannot survive by themselves. We see people now moving two, three families into little apartments where there was only one family before. We see the number of children going to school decreasing because the parents cannot afford to uh, uh, buy them books. So attention to these countries have to remain if we don't want to have refugees going back home by force. And of the more or less 70,000 refugees who have gone back from Syria to Lebanon, a survey has recently indicated that 60% regretted to have come back because they didn't find any place where to go. And I think it's important to remember that 80%, four out of five, did not go back to their areas of origin. So they go back to a situation of internal displacement within Iraq. I see that my time is getting close, so I will uh, leave it uh, here. I just want to repeat what to me is very important. The humanitarian situation has to be addressed and we have to find a link between uh, giving better humanitarian aid to Iraq and linking that to the development initiatives that was uh, mentioned uh, by Mr. Corbyn before. Uh, so that this population will become stabilized in the near future. Thank you very much.
Good morning. I'm very happy to be with you here today, and I actually wanted to also start on a brief note of optimism. I work at the United States Institute of Peace, which has had a consistent office in Baghdad since 2004, and a lot of great work has been done on Iraq. We've seen things that have happened in terms of a really growing civil society. Um, Iraqis were very proud of the elections and going out to vote, and many people would agree that the current negotiations, although very difficult and painful, um, are a great example of the power sharing and negotiation. I said brief because my task is to talk about exter the external uh, refugees, the people who are in neighboring countries. And I think it's hard to carry that note of optimism when I'm looking at the refugee situation in Iraq. What I wanted to do today was to give you first an overview of what the situation for refugees in neighboring countries is like. Second, talk about very specific issues that the refugees are facing. And finally end with my very own personal observations and potential recommendations for ways to move forward. To start with, it's important to talk about the number that was thrown around, the 1.5 million. This number was a you know, significant debate for many years. You know, going on in terms of initially, um, you had numbers from two to four million, and one of the biggest challenges has been how do we, we identify the number of people who have been uprooted in Iraq, whether refugees or the internally displaced people. And it's important to understand that there isn't a political undertone in terms of identifying that number. That number is the only real indicator for what's happening inside Iraq. Because of the security situation inside Iraq, there's been a lot of international actors who generally work in post-conflict areas who have not been able to access the country. And my colleague already mentioned the challenges of access. And so that number became political in terms of the success or failure of what was happening inside Iraq, and very specifically in terms of the Iraqi government's ability as duty bearer. UNHCR and other agencies have settled on the 1.5 million and the 500,000, which are refugees, but a lot of people argue that the number is much higher, particularly because of the resistance of refugees to settle, to register. Um, Iraqi refugees have been mainly going to Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. Few have been settling in Jordan. And in terms of the number, again, there's a constant. Those who are returning are replaced by new people who are coming in. So there's a lot of people who waited, and a lot of my colleagues waited until the last minute saying, we don't want to leave Iraq. We have a lot of faith in terms of the long-term development of Iraq. But then, because of personal circumstances, were forced out um, more recently in 2009 and 2010. Everyone is in agreement, I think both the international community, the Iraqi government, and the refugees themselves, that the best case scenario is repatriation. A lot of people want to see the Iraqis go back home and resettle. And a lot of Iraqis who have left have left, as already pointed out, as a last resort. Um, in my book, I describe it as being divided between humiliation as a refugee or death in Iraq. And when they are faced with that ultimatum, a lot of them are then pushed into going into um, neighboring countries with the hope of being able to go overseas. I think although that's the base case, best case scenario, it's important for us to be realistic, and it's not possible now, and I would argue probably in the foreseeable future, for these refugees to return home. Most of these refugees in neighboring countries were literally on the edge, waiting for the elections to see what would happen. And there's a very strong sense that they would like to see um, all minorities, particularly people who feel like they're marginalized within the Sunni political parties, are part of the new government before they can make that decision. So they're watching, I mean, you see from morning to night, people are stuck to the satellite channels, really waiting to see what the outcome of the elections will be. And that has a direct impact on their decision to return or not. 
Today's news was a little bit disturbing. I don't know if many people heard about the Netherlands' decision to return 100 Iraqi refugees who are in the Netherlands back to Iraq. And it's a growing fear of those who, are, who have ma managed to leave Iraq about this forcible return. And I wanted to share a personal story of a friend of mine and her decision when she left Iraq. Um, she's originally from Mosul. She has three kids. And she had settled in Baghdad early on, and her, all her kids were um, born and raised in Baghdad. She didn't want to leave because very simple reason, her daughter was in her senior year of high school. And you know she was getting ready to graduate and was very much a decision to stay. We don't want to leave. There was an incident near their neighborhood where they left. They spent a year in, Jordan, in Syria and started hearing all these rumors in 2008 of how great it was to go back. Of course, the daughter once more said, I want to go and I want to graduate. She's not allowed to go to school in Syria, and I want to finish high school. I really want to do this and put a lot of pressure on her family to return. They called their neighbors, heard, again, it's great, it's really good, come back. They came back, first day of school, um, the daughter, who was 16 at the time, uh, was shot, and she was paralyzed, and she's now paraplegic. And so when we're talking about return, when we're talking about repatriation, it's very important that we do it very cautiously. It's not to say that resettlement or repatriation isn't the solution. It's to say that there's a moral responsibility to make sure that we're pa painting the accurate picture for people who are returning. To go into specific issues, I wanted to talk about what most Iraqi refugees are facing. <clears throat> there's a huge amount of deepening poverty <clears throat> Cash is running out for most Iraqi refugees. Even those who came early on and were wealthier sold their land, brought all their savings, and a lot of those funds are being spent down in Iraq and in the neighboring countries and very little access to pensions or other funds that were coming from Iraq. In most countries, they're not allowed to work, so they have no access to income generation and no access to any form of livelihood, which makes it very easy for exploitation of refugees, and I would highlight particularly for women. We've been able to document several cases um, through other agencies that have shown that there has been an increased exploitation of women in these neighboring countries. A lot of these women are widows and particularly vulnerable. Add on the, la the layer of not being able to have income, it makes them even more so. The second point I would point out is the lack of access to education, which ties to poverty, but also ties to the laws of some of the host countries. And what's happening is a new potential for a lost generation in Iraq. Um, statistics from the IRC, from the International Ref uh, Refugee Council, points out that 40% of Iraqi refugees are adolescents, and 60% are under 25. So you have a large number of people, no access to education, no access to jobs, who are sitting at home and literally boiling as they feel that them and their families are being humiliated in host countries. And I say this is round two of the lost generation because we shouldn't forget about the 12 years of sanctions, which also had a great impact on Iraqi education, which as we know in the 1980s was one of the best education systems in the region. The, the third impact is they're living with a strong fear. I would argue the refugees that I've interacted with are actually living in stronger fear than the Iraqis that I've seen inside Iraq. And a part of it is because of this constant 24-hour news channel, this constant rumor mill, and perception is very much reality. So there's a lot of feeling of sectarianism, there's a lot of feeling about the militias, which inside Iraq, Iraqis have become more confident about and more able to deal with. Uh, particularly, you know, 2006 and 2000. 
2007 were considered by Iraqis to be a lot of the dark ages, and people have moved on. They've done reconciliation. They've worked with sect, you know, on sectarianism, where the refugees are a little bit frozen in time. They're frozen at the time that they left, and a lot of them have been traumatized. And so there's also a concern about when they return. Um, they'll be coming back with the 2006 mentality, whereas inside Iraq, you've seen a large amount of progress within the communities on these issues. Finally, one of the main issues is that a lot of Iraqis are living in limbo. You know, the idea of actually settling inside Jordan, Syria, um, although Iraqis would like that to happen, the reality is they'll never be able to be full citizens and have access to all the um, rights that other citizens would have. And so that leaves them in a state of limbo if they're staying in the region. We've seen an increased number of people who've actually turned down um, third country going to Europe or going to the US because of this fear of not enough support as well as a sense that uh, the, uh, there might be a ch point where they'll be sent back, again, looking at what's happening in the Netherlands today. Finally, I'll end with just a few recommendations based on my own personal observations. Um, the amount of aid that has gone to the refugee crisis, again, this is one of the largest movements in the region since 1947. So it's, it's an important issue in terms of the proportion of response to the Iraqi refugees from the international community has been you know, a little bit shameful in many ways. In most countries, in most instances, there's been a large reaction to the refugee crisis. So increasing aid, and I would say specifically focusing on um, cash assistance. Uh, second would be looking at re reconciliation programs targeting specifically Iraqis in neighboring countries. And finally, um, something that's in the hands of a lot of people in this side of the world is addressing the issue of limbo and really pushing Europe and the U.S. to re-examine their resettlement pro process. Um, the U.S. has been particularly good about accepting refugees um, and has been very open towards refugees coming into the country, but re-examining the assistance that comes when they arrive. Um, and at the very least, a lot of international outcry about those who are being forcibly returned. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Brian Katsoulis with the Center for American Progress. And it's a special honor for me to be here this morning because, in part, I'm, I'm an alumnus of uh, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. I was thinking about this when Dr. Anthony called me the other day uh, to ask if I could add a last minute bat cleanup on this panel. And I thought back to 20 years ago or so when I first, uh, my professional and academic career was shaped by a lot of the programs and efforts of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. And I'll never forget a visit I took to the region that was uh, led by Ann Kerr, a good friend of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. So um, when he called me up and we have, I'm a new father, we have a two month old at home and I'm getting on a flight tonight to go overseas. I said, I got to do this, honey. I got to, can you help me out? I know we're, we're scrambling. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and really to be a pleasure to be on this distinguished panel with Michael, Michelle, and um, Manal um, and Charles. The depth of expertise that we have here this morning really, I think, uh, can get us uh, it, it delve into these issues in a, in a clear way. Um, briefly, I'm at the Center for American Progress, which is a think tank founded in 2003. Uh, I think our claim to fame these days uh, is along the lines of the personnel we lost to this current administration. We lost more than 60 people um, um, who joined the White House and the State Department and other positions and senior positions. But uh, we also like to say our ideas has hel have helped shape this current administration's agenda. And my boss, John Podesta, never misses a moment to remind me what a good deal I have to be able to actually criticize a lot of my former friends and colleagues 
and how they're doing. I'm not going to do much of that this morning because I actually think they're doing a great job. Um, but what I do want to do is tee up what I think are three tests of uh, where we are right now on a rock. And these are three tests that most, if not all of you, have the ability to influence, uh, whether it's in your position in government, um, in the US or in other countries, or as a leader of an NGO or a thought leader uh, as an academic or a journalist. You all have the ability to shape what's happening here. And I hope this, um, this forum will help us think about these three tests. The first test is the test uh, to the Iraqi leadership. The second test is the test to the Middle East as a region, a region in transformation. And the third test is a test of US national security policy. First, the test of Iraqi leadership. I talked about the, these elections uh, earlier this year and also the 2009 elections uh, like a stress test, like a cardiologist hooking up a heart patient uh, to see how things are going and whether it will hang together. And I think a lot of people, like most elections, get fixated on election day, but the most important process is happening right now. And I agree with what Michael said. There is real politics happening right now. And uh, um, uh, not to reveal any state secrets, but Charles and I witnessed up close and personal the complex coalition math that Iraqi leaders engage in to get to that magic number of 163. And I know here in DC, inside the Beltway, we would be shocked to hear about the notion of self-interested political elites disconnected from their people trying to get positions in power. Um, but it's happening in Baghdad, and that's actually a good thing when you compare to what was happening in Baghdad 10 years ago. Uh, the two questions I think right now that are most relevant, and this is mostly for the Iraqi people, but for those who can shape and influence their calculations at this point, um, is number one, how are they going to resolve many of the unresolved questions of how to share power? And we all know this if you follow Iraq closely. You look at the 2005 Constitution, um, and although the process has continued, the political process, many of the substantive power sharing issues, uh, the relation of the central government to the provincial governments, the, the balance of power, the checks of and balances on the executive, still remain unresolved today, and fortunately, uh, there are still attempts ongoing to resolve that peacefully rather than in the streets and in battles between armed uh, militias. So all of these issues and the number one question is how will Iraq choose to decide what the new Iraq looks like and how it shares power? Second and related is will Iraqi politics continue to evolve? I don't know and I don't think anybody can predict whether we'll have a grand inclusive coalition. Uh, or when that might happen. I ask my friends at the administration all the time, people who are working these issues, and I think it's really unclear. But if there is a coalition that doesn't include, does not include some of the leading parties, a key question is, will there be a peaceful democratic opposition that exists and operates outside of the patronage networks of uh, the ministries and uh, it leads Iraq into a new style of politics? All of these things will take time. Uh, obviously, you know, the government for formation, I believe, is in the Guinness Book of World Records as taking so long. But it takes time because Iraq, for more than 20 years, was isolated from the rest of the region. Uh, it was controlled mostly, most of Iraq, by a dictator. And these sorts of issues aren't easily, e easy to sort out. Which leads me to the second test, which is a test to the region. And for those of you from the region, you understand this. And this is a very key test, and the region is played, I think, a much stronger role. I think few people in this room today would deny that the way that the United States 
um, uh, under George W. Bush went to war in Iraq and then handled the first few years of the war in Iraq actually had a very devastating effect on the region. And to this day, we're still trying to clean up from um, that mess. And we may have different views on this. But I, I personally believe that we're still trying to take a sad song and make it better from a U.S. national security standpoint. That it is still a, US, uh, a net negative from the U.S. national security standpoint. But it can be redeemed. It will only be redeemed not only by the actions of the U.S. and the follow-through, which I'll get, get to shortly, but importantly, the actions of uh, uh, countries in the region, neighbors of Iraq. And I know here in Washington, we like to get our uh, debates fixated on that which we've done. And we've played an important role. The surge, I think, helped uh, decrease the violence. But less noticed are the actions by key countries like Turkey since 2007, adopting a different tone and posture towards the Iraqi government in a way that I think has been deeply constructive, hasn't solved all of the issues, but has been helpful. There's a lot of talk in this process of government formation about Iran's role, and I think we need to watch that carefully, particularly um, based on what we saw in the pre-election period with the debathification committee. But we need to temper our analysis about the role that Iran plays with the strong understanding that Iraqi nationalism is very much alive and well. I witnessed this when I first went into Iraq in 2003, and it's very assertive. So yes, Iran is seeking to play a role, and I do believe that many of uh, the uh, countries of the Arab world are playing an important role also. It's an open system, if you will, and I think we need to temper our analysis with uh, these visions, uh, uh, the visions that are out there sometimes of one party from the outside imposing its agenda on Iraqis versus the other. It's a complicated game, and many actors are playing an important role. I mean, the fact that Prime Minister Maliki was in Egypt yesterday, I think, was an important sign that there's ferment, um, and this is a years-long project. But I think the fundamental objective of most Iraqi leaders, when I talk to them, is to move beyond this 20-year period of isolation, this understanding that becoming more interconnected with all of its neighbors, interconnected with the rest of the region, and interconnected with the rest of the world is in the interest of Iraq. And this is a regional project. And for those of you who work in the region, this is a great responsibility. And I'll close on the test for US policy, because I think it's very significant. And Michael alluded to it in some of his remarks. And although today, I think the president spends uh, the, the balance of his time on Afghanistan and Pakistan, we've had a recalibration uh, compared to three or four years ago in terms of where the resources, time, and attention are. Iraq remains fundamentally important. And I think this president, despite what he said on the campaign and how people perceived the withdrawal timeline of military forces, remains fundamentally commit committed to, to seeing Iraq evolve and help in the right sort of way. Not trying to control, but to shape uh, the most important efforts. I think on the US side, for US national security, there are two main challenges. One, and again, Michael's remarks alluded to this, but this Iraq today presents one of the biggest challenges to this notion of smart power. Smart power, the label that um, Secretary Gates and Secretary Clinton and the President use to talk about the shift of resources from the military to a greater emphasis on diplomacy and development. And I have many friends who are trying to deal with this in the various uh, mechanisms, QDDR, this rebalance of how we conduct national security. Iraq is one of these tests. And as Michael has indicated, the State Department is going to be playing a much stronger role on things that, quite frankly, the State Department has lacked the capacity, the funding, the budget, and the personnel to do. 
And I think this will be a significant test. I'm confident, knowing who I know is leading over there, that they will do their best to meet this challenge. But it is, I think, the ultimate challenge of uh, smart power and changing the way the U.S. does national security. The second challenge, and this is one concern I have, and it's more conceptual, and for those of you who are academics and write a lot, is one of a broader regional strategy. When I look at things like the Obama administration's national security strategy, which was released in May, and I look at the sections on the Middle East, I think it's a fair and constructive criticism to say there's, there's a lot that's unanswered about where Iraq fits within this broader conception. And perhaps no grand strategy is viable at this point, given the complexity of, of, of inter-regional dynamics. But to put it simplistically, in the 1980s, if we were supporting an Iraq as a buffer against Iran, uh, to contain Iranian influence, and in the 90s we had a policy of dual containment. I'm not certain what the overriding imperative for U.S. strategic policy in the broader region is, and when I talk to some of my friends at senior uh, levels of the administration, I think we've got great tactical management, much better than we were in 2005, 2006, of individual pieces of the Middle East, but it doesn't, I think, sum up yet to an overarching theme of where we're going to be uh, five or ten years from now. If anything, I think the overriding imperative is to deal with the uh, Iranian influence and the increasing Iranian influence. And you see this in today's newspapers, the $60 billion uh, weapons package uh, with F-15s to Saudi Arabia. And these are all fine and well, but what I'm saying is, is there a greater sum? What is our broader objective and where do we want to be, say, by 2020? All of these questions are complicated. The three tests of Iraqi leadership of the region of U.S. national security policy, again, you have a role, we all have a role in shaping this. And I think that's the most important thing as we discuss these issues in the question and answer, as you take these thoughts with you. Uh, Iraq is not a dead issue. It is still very much alive, and it, a new Iraq can actually serve as a bridge, I do believe, between um, some of the most complicated parts of the Middle East and bring us, I think, to a, to a better position. So thank you, and I uh, look forward to your comments and questions. Um, I think we're going to go, uh, due, to, due to time constraints and considerations, we're going to go straight to the questions. And Dr. Anthony will throw out the first one. We uh, try to link these two uh, with, separated by a semicolon. We heard from the first uh, lecturer, Ambassador Freeman, that the United States intervention has succeeded in getting, only in getting rid of Saddam Hussein, nothing else. Is Iraq uh, truly better off today than it was prior to the invasion? Uh, we, we get the positive upbeat, the optimistic picture from bureaucrats, media, those embedded with the troops, and those who take um, short visits to the region. Uh, but can we have a net assessment on whether uh, the situation is better for what we did or a truly net assessment worse for what we did? Related, um, as a U.S. citizen and a native of Iraq, what can I do as an individual to increase USA to the Iraqi refugees? Time is not on the Iraqi side, as you mentioned. The number of Iraqi refugees who've been admitted into the United States is tinier than minuscule compared to Jordan and Iraq. The living standard and deterioration and the decline of the literacy level among ch children, these are major issues. How can we get to the bottom line? Okay. Do you want to take the first one? 
At, at being in a room full of historians, I think it, it's apt to say that how we determine what the uh, end game is in Iraq when we really do start talking about an end game, I, I, I would just throw out a couple of thoughts. When, when I look at Iraq, and I put it in historical context, when I look at decentralization, which is absolutely unheard of in any other Arab state, when I look at the civil society law which the parliament adopted and which is being implemented by the government, when I look at the remaining media freedom, which is the only way we're going to deal with corruption, when I look at the institutions in Iraq that are struggling to come back, of course, there are enormous challenges. And some of our speakers addressed, of course, the refugee situation, the unemployment situation, but of course, the issues of power sharing are also enormous challenges. But when I look at where we were in 2006, and I look at where we are in 2010, I have to say that the history books will be written, but we are in a process where the Iraqis abandoned civil war, where they're seeking to balance their relations with their neighbors, where they've chosen politics, where decentralization, free media, uh, civil society are elements that the Iraqis are, um, have seized on and desperately want to make work. I would I look at things, and we I think the, the first question we all need to answer ourselves based on your own position, but I look at things from a U.S. national security standpoint, and I mentioned this briefly. I, I do believe to this day the Iraq war is a net negative, was perhaps one of the biggest strategic blunders uh, from a U.S. national security standpoint when you look at the opportunity costs. And I say this with all respect and deference to those who served and who've committed their lives to making Iraq better. But at the most strategic level, the leadership level, I think when the historians look back on this uh, certain period, I think they'll understand we went awry. And this is not an argument to say that Saddam Hussein was a good guy and that we could have uh, just kept him in power and everything would have been all right. Things need to change and evolve. And I'm glad that things are evolving and certainly have improved since 2006. We, we've been pulled, I think, back from the brink. But had we do it all over again, we would not have done it in the way that we did, and I don't even think war would have been the best option. I think the, the, if an outcome, though, that brings Iraq back uh, into the fold in the broader region, much more interconnected with all of its neighbors, with the region and the world, and if we have a much more functional region where there are all of the rivalries, you know, and I think this is a question of do we want to look to the past or look to the future? And, and I think there's an impulse among especially the, the younger generation of Iraqis who just, when they travel through the UAE and other places, they, they, they want to leave behind all of those divides. So I think from a U.S. national security standpoint, though, it's still a net negative. The impact it had on our troops, the costs, the opportunity costs, the messes that I think were left behind in other places, um, I, I think the historians will still have a, a grim look outlook on this, even even if things turn turn to the better, which I expect they will in Iraq. I would add a little bit of what I hear from Iraqis when I'm in Iraq, and I think that it's a difficult question. And most people would say the jury's still out um, from the Iraqi perspective. And you have the exact same individuals who will sit and say, and, and refuse to compare to 2006. Let's remember in 2006, the death toll was 100 people a day. Um, school buses were being blown up on a regular basis. And they say 2006, 2007 was a black hole. It was dark ages. We refused to compare it to then. We like to compare to 2003, which is when the US entered. And again, this is the Iraqi perspective. And they're saying in terms of education, in terms of security, in terms of access to health care, in terms of electricity, which is one of the still one of the biggest issues, and in terms of access to clean water, all things have gotten worse. And Iraqis will say that over and over and over again. 
And then the next thing they'll say to me always surprises me, no matter how much I hear it, which is, we still think it was worth it. And even after a list of complaints, even a, a, a list of how the US made crucial mistakes, and a list of a sense of feeling betrayed by the international community, a lot of times they'll say, it's still worth it. And I think it's very hard for me personally to grapple with that, but that's the majority of comments that I often hear. I think, again, the jury's still out how it materialized. This government formation is a crucial turning point in terms of where it can go, and it's very exciting. You know, it could go in a great direction, and it could also go in a very grim direction, which is why everyone is literally on the edge of their seats to find out what the outcome will be. Okay. Thanks. Let me, let me just add to that. I was in Baghdad a few months ago with a delegation from the Stimson Center, and we had the opportunity to have um, wonderful meetings with civil society uh, representatives, students, and so on. We had about 20 of them in the room, and we asked the question, are you happier today that Saddam Hussein is gone, or would you rather not have had this? And you know, every single hand, and every single hand went up when they said, when we when we asked them this, they were all happy that Saddam Hussein was no longer there, that there had been a change of government. So I mean, I realize there's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of uh, dissension and differences of opinions uh, in Iraq, but that that kind of struck me, especially coming from the young people. Let me ask another question here, which we haven't really touched on in any uh, depth. Uh, and, uh, so far. And basically, it's what's the future of the Kurdish situation? The Kurds have issued a manifesto of, of sorts with about 19 different demands, many of which seem to be unconstitutional, uh, for their participation in the future government and lending their support to the next prime minister. Um, and the question is basically, um, what can the Kurds be accommodated within a federal system, um, either as it exists or uh, with major constitutional changes, or are these two sides drifting uh, irrevocably uh, apart? And, and, and second, what is uh, the future of uh, U.S. mediation between uh, Baghdad and the Kurdistan regional government? Um, if we do completely withdraw our forces uh, by the end of 2011, what leverage do we have to mediate that conflict? What what is what is our plan as we as we as we look out? They, they, I get stuck with that one again. But just quickly, this is very important. The, one of the greatest challenges that we face and will face is Kurd-Arab relations. But again, what I would point at is politics as a solution. And I think that what as the Kurds negotiate with the other parties about their future. There is a sense that what Ambassador Crocker used to say, that the Kurds need to see their future in Baghdad rather than Erbil, is actually coming true. When you see the involvement of the Kurds in the formation of the new government, in politics, in um, uh, Baghdad, you see that the Kurds see their future as linked. Now, of course, there are enormous issues, but one other, or a couple other elements. First. Kurdish politics is changing also. We can't forget that the division between the two made, the KDP and the PUK, which has long uh, determined uh, politics in, in Kurdistan, is changing. The press freedom, the killing of a journalist early this year, led to enormous outcry in Kurdistan. Thing, change is coming in Kurdistan as it is coming everywhere else, and that will have an impact on the rest of the country. Finally, hydrocarbons are extremely important, and this will be part of the negotiations. But now that the southern oil fields have been opened to international exploitation, the Kurdish hydrocarbons are not the most easily available or quickest 
to get to quickly, and that means that the Kurdish negotiation position has changed. We see negotiation on dibs. We see the role of UNAMI. We see there is a future. The administration will be absolutely seized with this issue, but we do see politics rather than violence as the way forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, can the Kurds be accommodated in a federal system? My answer is yes, and if not, we've got to come up with a plan B, but that plan B has to be accommodated not only within the Iraqi system, but within the broader region, which is probably far more difficult than um, um, starting from where we are right now, which is a difficult point. Um, and, and, you know, one thing I'd, I'd say just to compliment maybe what Michael said, I think, yes, politics are still, uh, we, we all agree that politics are happening, and it's a good thing that, you know, Maliki is, is talking with the Sutterists rather than uh, uh, going to war with them. Generally, it's, it's unbalanced. Maybe Michael and I might disagree on that. But I think politics on these big ticket items of how to share power were frozen. There's a curious thing that I think happened, and I did a report two years ago with Mark Lynch and a few other analysts that looked at Iraqis, uh, Iraq's political transition after the surge. And I think that coalition that led Iraq from 2004 till about 2008 started to break down, started to fundamentally disagree with things. And that doesn't mean politics were breaking down. Uh, and, and in fact, it may, may mean the reverse. But the big issues of what is Iraq still remain unresolved. And I think we all need to think creatively about what are the best ways to help Iraqis uh, facilitate these, these divides or bridge these divides um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a more creative fashion than we have. I think that the, um, in terms of, of the Arab-Kurd relations and, and where that will go, just to kind of highlight in terms of the important change that's happening in the north and the regional Kurdish elections, a third party was introduced and actually did very well, uh, incidentally called change, um, and was kind of the buzz of civil society and got a lot of um, votes, particularly in Soleimaniya, which is a great movement towards the Kurdish regional government and their political system. But you know, when we're talking about the U.S. responsibility, I would add to the word leverage res responsibility in terms of that the U.S. needs to be engaged in the Arab um, Kurdish debate because it is an important issue. And that can't be done without the difficult conversation of Kirkuk. We cannot answer that question until we really look carefully at what, about the status of Kirkuk, which the Constitution provides special conditions for. Um, it's exciting. Census is now being discussed. The UN is saying that in the next 60 days, the census in Kirkuk and, um, will, will take place. Um, and it is the essential element to, towards where that relationship will go. There's a fear within Iraq that the status of Kirkuk will be similar to the status of Jerusalem which is it will consistently be postponed and never resolved. And I think as long as that is the, again, perceptions in, real, uh, in Iraq are reality. As long as that's the strong perception, then I think the tension between the Arab Kurds will only increase. Okay. Um, two related questions here. How many Foreign Service officers currently serve in Iraq? Uh, where do they serve in Iraq? Uh, what is the situation with fewer than 40 uh, Arabic speakers in the 1,000-person envisioned American embassy uh, in Baghdad? Uh, do Americans living and working uh, in Iraq uh, work, live in the place where they work? If not, why? Does that mean they have to travel with security vehicles to their workplaces? Why are there so many? private security and civilian contractors over and beyond those uniformed armed services personnel. And I might add that one individual, a friend of mine, who has signature authority for $1.2 billion in Iraq for a civilian development contracts said, John, of the $1.2 billion I have to spend, 
$750 million is for security. Wow. And if I could just further complicate Michael's task here. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, um, you know, the, the State Department has a very big request uh, before Congress to fund perhaps six to 7,000 uh, security contractors including um, an air wing uh, to support movement uh, and security around the country. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be closing our, our PRTs uh, by the end of the year. Um, so I'm, I'm just interested in your take, Michael, on, on um, whether the State Department feels pretty confident that it can, can accomplish this mission and will still have the kind of access uh, to the Iraqi people uh, as this as this civilian transition uh, goes ahead uh, that we have had to a certain extent in the past. I'll, I'll try and answer in shorthand because that's about six questions, but basically <laughs> there's about a thousand um, uh, different types of, of foreign service, civil service. We have programs where we bring in technical experts who are working in the embassy in Baghdad. We have more spread around the PR, the provincial reconstruction teams around the country. What we're setting up to do, and we've been planning for the last year, is to have two consulates and two what are called embassy branch offices, and they've been chosen to be in critical areas where we can do outreach after the military's gone. Um, we believe that we're going to be able to do that. The two consulates are in Basra, in the south, economic important city, and in Erbil, in the north, where we have, of course, to work with the Kurdish uh, regional government. Um, what we also have is Kirkuk, which was just mentioned. We'll have an embassy branch office there, and also Mosul, which is very important for protection of minorities, which is something that we're very focused on, and Arab-Kurd tensions that um, spill over in the uh, Nineveh Plain. Um, our, in terms of getting out and getting about, private security contractors, I think this is misunderstood. Um, those private security contractors who understood that in January of 2009, the, the, the U.S. running the show was over, uh, made arrangements with the Iraqi government, applied for license, started working with the Ministry of Interior. Those private security com com uh, companies that work all over the world, that understood that this was really an Iraqi show from January of 2009, are doing fine. And Iraqi, Iraqi officials and private companies are using those international private um, security companies. We dealt with the Blackwater Nisser Square incident. We haven't had incidents since then. Private, this is no longer the wild, wild west. It's frustrating. It's difficult. The oil company, the international oil companies that are going in the south are using private security contractors. We don't see this as an enormous problem. Um, in terms of Arabic speakers, Absolutely, we're working to bring more Arabic speakers in. Um, it's one of the top priorities for the, it was for the last uh, Secretary of State and for this Secretary of State. Um, we're bringing those people to Iraq. We think we can get around. We've, we, uh, one last point I'd make is that Iraqis are welcoming a civilian partnership. We're building on the enormous sacrifices that our, our men and, and women in uniform have made over the last seven years. But when you look at the cities, Iraqis want not just um, U.S. civilians, they want Iraqi civilians. They don't want the Iraqi army doing security in the cities. They want the Iraqi police doing security in the cities. They don't want me um, men and women in American uniforms. They want diplomats in suits. And I travel to Iraq regularly, and when I ask them, are you ready for a, a U.S. presence with all the private security contractors that we'll have to have, they say absolutely as a transition from the security relationship to a civilian relationship. So I probably answered only part of the questions, but this is where we are focused on this. 
Thank you. Um, I am going to um, ask a sort of raft of uh, refugee-related questions, um, the, the overarching one of which is, uh, is it fair to say that the refugee IDP situation may be the most important index of gross national stability or gross national progress uh, in Iraq? And a few related questions uh, talk about the situation of specific refugee communities. Um, uh, first one has to do with the Palestinian refugees uh, who are living between Jordan and Iraq. What is their destiny? Do you think they'll end up becoming U.S. citizens? Are they going back to Iraq? Uh, what is their future? Um, and this is specifically for uh, Manal. Um, how many Iraqis has the U.S. accepted as refugees um, uh, uh, since 2003? And finally, a question on um, the plight of the uh, Chaldean Christians. Uh, what is their future? How many are emigrating? But perhaps we might address the, the question of Iraqi uh, Christians more broadly in that context. Yes, so the, the U.S. has resettled, has resettled over 50,000 refugees uh, from Iraq. It's been a slow uh, beginning, but once it uh, uh, decided how to manage all the clearance system, etc., it's been a pretty efficient uh, mechanism and, and a faster one, despite what was said uh, at one point, than the process applied to people coming from other regions in the world. So I think it's been a fairly successful um, Exercise, and we think it should, it should keep on because there are still people for whom return, even in a distant future, is just never going to be uh, considered. Refugees are an indicator of stability. Uh, we, we would like these to be an indicator. I don't think it is. I think there is a danger to say as we move into a more politically um, uh, progressive uh, uh, situation, uh, one can leave the humanitarian situation a little bit on the back burner. And I think this is what is wrong. Uh, I think there will not be stability unless these populations are stabilized themselves. Right now, we have a large number of refugees who say they never want to go back, so they are a burden for Syria and Jordan. If Syria and Jordan are not being consistently uh, uh, and sustained in the uh, tolerance they have for these people, and they see that Europe is returning people, at one point, they may also turn to the same sort of, um, uh, of measures. If you return people forcefully in an area that cannot absorb them, you add to social disruption and therefore to uh, political uh, complexity uh, and risks of, uh, of destabilization. As far for the people who are internal, as I say, you have 500,000 people who squatter. Uh, if you don't address uh, their, their plight, you're going to have frustration building among a young generation of people with no future. And I think if anything history tells us, you don't want to have a large number of young men who become frustrated in the Middle East. And I think it is not just a question of um, humanitarian concern and, and, and morals. I think it's a question of well thought of uh, security. We have time for one last question. There was, I, I think, uh, so, Manal. Yeah, just Michael, real, think, real quick. Quick on the, um, I think the refugee situation was taken care of. Just 50,000, um, according to Michael, in terms of how many have been accepted in the U.S. But I really wanted to address the issue of the minorities because it's an essential issue at USIP. And one of the programs we're really focusing on is how to support the minorities um, in the Nineveh Plain and elsewhere. Um, you've already seen a large migration. There was a strong Catholic presence in Basra. Some of them migrated to Baghdad and now have migrated to uh, 
neighboring countries. Um, those that are involved in the north, you can actually track it by satellite, the movement towards Erbil and towards Turkey, which is extreme concern. The, um, the Christians in Iraq have always been an essential part of the social fabric of Iraqi society. So in addition to the right to protect, there's also an issue of what the mosaic of Iraq will be in the future. And it's a concern for all Iraqis and something that's very strongly stressed. Um, we've been working towards building an alliance of minorities that include all the minorities, the Yazidis, the Sabi'in, um, the, and the different Christian sect, um, groups in terms of making sure that they have a voice within parliament as well as civil society. Um, it's a strong challenge because these are among the groups who have really dug in their heels not to leave. You know, when we interview a lot of the high-level um, representatives of the minorities, they say that we are trying to think of our long-term presence in Iraq, and they've really resisted leaving, and they've really resisted. A lot of Europeans have said that we will only accept, um, you know, Chaldeans or Christians, and there's a huge presence in San Diego, so there's a very strong pull factor, and they've, you know, been resisting it, but they've been specifically targeted. I mean, we've seen a lot of violence that's happened in the North, specifically targeting um, the communities, you know, for unknown reasons, and it goes back a little bit to the Arab-Kurd tensions. Um, a lot of the minorities feel that they're caught in the middle because of the electoral system and because of their actual um, geographical presence and having to choose between the Kurds or the Arabs um, and a lot of pressure in terms of which side you're on and they're already feeling marginalized and then to have that added pressure is obviously not helping their situation. Two, two uh, just two quick comments. One, that, that this is that the minorities, and it's not just Christians, it's all the minorities, is an incredibly important priority for us in the administration. And one of the things I do is visit those communities in the states who are so having the burden of those new refugees who happen to be coming to the U.S. at the worst economic period for new refugees. We're working with the communities here in the United States, and we're working in the Nineveh Plain and throughout Iraq to work with the government on protecting these communities, to work with the government on bringing these communities into the police forces. Um, the USIP has a program on caucusing. This is where we're encouraged by the representat representatives working together to get their interests recognized. They're, they are an, The minorities are part of the diverse components of Iraq, and they have to be protected. And we, we see um, that the Iraqi leadership understands this. Now, this is going to be a great challenge, and it, but it's something that we're very focused on. And then. My last point is just that somebody asked what American citizens can do. I would just say to the people in this room on Iraq, Iraq is much more complex than the media portrays. What we need to get across is that this isn't a situation where it's unremitting violence, where it's hopeless, where the situations are not solved. The Iraqis are working on their solutions. They're working on Iraqi solutions for their problems. We need to look at ways of explaining that we need to invest in Iraq. And this is for Congress. This is for business people. This, is, this, is a, this has the opportunity, as somebody said, of being a bridge in the region. And we can help the efforts of the Iraqis, the ter terrific challenges of refugees, of poverty, of unemployment, the threat of terrorism. Our relations, not just the government, but all the private citizens with Iraq, are extremely important as we go forward. And I thank, thank you again for this opportunity. Well, I'd like to thank all of our panelists for a wonderful set of presentations, which has really illuminated the complexities uh, of Iraq, uh, not only within the region, but in terms of U.S. policy. And as Michael, Brian, and others have said, um, Iraq is going to be a major foreign policy concern for the United States for some great period of time. Uh, but not only a negative concern, but a positive concern. 
uh, one that can be a real asset not only to the United States but for general stability in the region. Um, but clearly there are lots of problems to be resolved uh, before we get to that uh, state of affairs and certainly uh, how the refugees are dealt with is, is going to be a real indicator of Iraq's progress going forward. Uh, so thank you very much to all of our panelists. Uh, uh, it was a real pleasure being with you here and please join me in, in, in thanking them.